Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with legendary basketball coach of the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, Digger Phelps. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. Uh, Today we got one of the biggest baseball fans I know, and I can't believe he's not in the Hall of Fame. Springfield, if you're listening, future Hall of Famer, ladies and gentlemen, Digger Phelps. Digger, how you doing? Thanks for coming on. Brent, it's really my pleasure, but I got to go do a little flashback memory. When your dad, Bob Boone, was catching for the Phillies, there was two characters on that team, Larry Boone, the shortstop, and Greg Lazinski, the first baseman. And I got to know those guys. And believe it or not, they lived in Cherry Hoon, New Jersey, across from Philly, even in the offseason before they left for spring training. And when I was coaching in Notre Dame, and we used to play at the Plester in Philadelphia against Villanova or LaSalle, those guys, I'd get them tickets. And they always came to the games in the Plester. So we're really great friends. And, of course, your dad was a very special guy. I remember Bull and Boa well. Yeah, they were they were a huge part of my childhood. Um, yeah. All right, Digger. So, Digger Phelps, obviously known for basketball, all those years at Notre Dame, all those years at ESPN. But I know that you really love the game of baseball. Tell me how you fell in love with the game. <laughs> and did you play as a kid? Yeah, in our my hometown of Beacon, New York, which is up the Hudson River by West Point, uh, they started a little league program, and we were on the first team. And um, I was a Brooklyn Dodger fan growing up. We hated the Yankees. And, of course, my little league team was the Yankees, and I played center field, so I wore number seven for Mickey Mantle. And uh, I batted left-handed, and uh, I hit a couple home runs in my little league career, and I played high school baseball. But uh, somehow, some way, um, because of what baseball was as a kid growing up, and with the, the Giants used to play at the Polo Grounds across the river from Yankee Stadium, and the Dodgers played at Ebbets Field in Brooklyn, and of course the Yankees at Yankee Stadium, that's what it was then growing up. I mean, the Knicks were the Knicks, but not like baseball. So I was always a baseball fan. And then, of course, uh, when it all hit me that um, – running into your dad and the Phillies and with Bo and Lazinski, uh, it was still there. And even though I was coaching basketball, I would still hang out with baseball. Then, of course, my former son-in-law, Jamie Moyer, who was a Philly and played with about four or five different teams in the major leagues, he kept that going on with baseball. So baseball's always been special. And I'll tell you another sidebar story. When I moved out here in 71, when I coached at Fordham and left to come to Notre Dame, um, I became a Cubs fan. And I would go up and sit with Harry Carey and do a couple innings, the seventh inning or eighth inning, with Harry Carey and Steve Stone back when. Well, when he died, when Harry Carey died, I was asked by the Cubs to come up and sing the seventh inning stretch. They would do that for every home game, have somebody come in and do it and throw out a first pitch. Well, um, as that turned out, Ernie Banks and I were the last two guys to do it. Ron Santel did it uh, until he passed, and then Banks did it up to about four years ago. 
And so Banks and I would do it every year differently, different games. But when he passed, what I did, uh, I'd throw out the first pitch, but I'd go out to the mound wearing Ernie Banks' jersey. and the back it said Banks 14. In the seventh inning, I got up, and I would say to the Cubs fans, all right, Cubs fans, today we're not just going to sing this for Harry Carey. We're going to sing it also for Ernie Banks, and 41,000 would go crazy. And I did that for four straight years until this past year. Of course, there was no crowd. So the streak was at 21, uh, still hanging around baseball and hanging around Wrigley Field, which, as we all know, is the oldest park in the National League, as Fenway Park is the oldest park in the American League. So baseball has always been a part of my life, Brett. Yeah, and doing 21 years singing. The, uh, yeah. You know what? I, I've never done it one time. I don't, I don't know if I'd get the words right. <laughs> but but so so you're a big Cubs fan. <clears throat> 2016, they win the World Series. They finally get it done. And by the way, yeah. yours yours truly one of the biggest detractors. I thought no way. How did Madden get it done? 16? Because I know I know you were watching. <laughs> Let me tell about Joe Madden's background. When I coached St. Gabriel's High School in Hazelden, Pennsylvania, which is near Scranton on the east coast of Pennsylvania. It was on South Wyoming Street, and we won a Class C state championship. Well, this little 11-year-old kid used to hang around the gym and hang around because he grew up on South Wyoming Street. It was Mr. Joe Madden. He grew up way back then. So when he became the Cubs manager, I'd go up and see him and before the game out in the field, and we'd just talk and get everything going like that. And as it turned out, when they end up – they were down, I believe, three games to one in the in the World Series. And I said to uh, one of the guys, I said, go down that clubhouse and tell Joe I'm here and tell him if St. Gables can win that national uh, state championship, which we did back in 65, then Joe Madden can win the World Series and they go on and win the, the three next games and win it four to three and it became came World Series. So that next spring I go up there and I said, Joe, how come everybody got a ring but me? I didn't get my World Series ring, just busted them. So, no, that's that's some of the sidebar stories with the Cubs and what Joe Madden did with that team. He's one of the best ever. Uh, the way he is with players and what he can do and how he can do it, he was just a great one. And one of the other great ones in my life was Tommy Lasorda who was more than just what he was for the Dodgers. He was just a great guy. He knew every great Italian restaurant in every city. And another funny sidebar story, one night I'm recruiting in New York, and this is when um, they end up winning that World Series that year. But they're playing the Mets. And we're at the same hotel, and he says, meet me back here at 11, we'll go out to eat. So my assistant coach and I, we get back at the hotel. They're playing the Mets. They win the game. Next thing you know, we end up going out, we get in this limousine, and we go into Brooklyn, and, the, and we pull up in this restaurant, and there's five limousines out front with these guys standing around the limousines. We go in the Italian restaurant, and these five guys are sitting at this round table, and Tommy says, I'll be right there. Go sit at our table. Well, he goes over, and all those guys were kissing his ring like he was the godfather, but he knew them all. And a typical Lasorda dinner, we started eating at midnight. We left the restaurant at 4 in the morning because there's more than one just course, and it's not just spaghetti and meatball. But there were some characters that I knew in baseball that were just great guys and great friends. And, and I think when you look at the history of baseball and what has been in this country all these years, 
Uh, it's one of the great sports ever. And, boy, it would be nice if we can ever get the crowds back in the baseball stadiums again. And if we can just get everybody vaccinated and get this vaccine put to rest, we can see that happen again, Brett. Yeah, and I think I think you're this year. I think you're going to see it probably once you get into May. You know, as you know, right now uh, they're negotiating the union and and yeah. the players, or the union and the and the owners. I know I've been right in the middle of those, and I don't wish those on anybody. Educational, but you know, what, a pain, what a what a pain in the ass. And you talk about you know two guys, Joe Madden. Uh, <clears throat> You know, my experience with Joe is he was a coach under Socha with the Angels during my playing days. Yes. Always a good guy. Yes. And uh, you mentioned Tommy. I could see Tommy and you guys sitting in that restaurant, closing <laughs> it down. Uh, man, what a what an unbelievable – you know, Tommy was one of a kind, as you know. And yes. uh, what, a, what, an ambas- what an ambassador for the game. And yeah. – uh, you know, we've been hey, losing a lot of Another people. sidebar on that. You brought up Mike Socha. So mm-hmm. the Cubs are playing the Dodgers at Wrigley. So I go up and see Tommy before the game at Wrigley Field. And all of a sudden, Mike Socha comes in, and he sees me. And he says, Digger Phelps. I said, yeah, nice to meet you. He said, you came to my high school when I was a senior high school, and the whole high school knew you were coming. I said, where was that? He said Springfield, out, out right next to the, the Philadelphia, you know, airport. And I was recruiting a kid named Dave Batten, who's six ten, ended up playing for us and gets us to the Final Four. But Socha was at that same high school at the same time, and and the next thing you know, he know the whole school knew I was coming, and I go to the school and we get Dave Batten. But Mike remembers me coming to his high school back when. And boy, the rest is history for him and his career. What a great catcher! What a great manager! Yeah, and we recently had him on the podcast, and uh, I, I love to talk the mental side of the game and and just the nuances. And uh, it was a it was a real interesting podcast for me. I mean, the insight that he's had because Socha's kind of a throwback guy. He's a you know he, yes. he's a you know what we call an old school guy. But yet yeah. was managing in this new generation, um, and uh, he, he, he brought a real interesting. Him. Yeah, he brought a real interesting take yeah. on what's going on now versus versus past. I want to yeah. get into you. You've coached a lot of years, and uh, <laughs> tell me this. Tell me what a great basketball coach and a great big league manager. What are the things that they have in common? I think is having the players trust you. That's the most important thing. If you got the players trust, then you can convince them to do anything on offense or defense. But I got to give you some background going way back. I grew up as an undertaker's son in the Hudson Valley. And the way I got the name Digger, my first name is Richard. My father's name is Richard, but he was known as Dick Phelps. And our funeral home was in the middle of one block, go through the backyard of the funeral home in the next corner in the same block was our house. So I grew up there. And the next thing you know, as I go to Ryder College in Trenton, New Jersey, my dad broke me into business and I was going to get a business degree. And we bought more land to build another funeral home up in Fiskill, New York, where IBM was going to have 50,000 employees. So that was going to be my place. My dad was still going to run the place in Beacon. 
So I go to Ryder, and I did play basketball. I sat on the bench, and I always used to check out the visiting team's cheerleaders. That was my job. But I got the nickname Digger. This is funny. Our junior high school and high school were in the same building in Beacon, New York. And we just idolized, as kids growing up, the varsity baseball, basketball, football team. So in the eighth grade, I became bat boy for the baseball team, the varsity baseball team in Beacon High School. And we'd go up down to Hudson Valley and play these games against Osney, Peekskill, Poughkeepsie, Newburgh. Well, the guys would be out in the field getting bad practice for the game. I'd sneak back on the bus and look at their lunch bags and eat their cupcakes and cookies. So on the way home, uh, here I am as an eighth grader. The guys are beating me up in the back of the bus. I'm yelling for the coach. His name is Jim Garloff. And the guy's telling him what I was doing. He says, Phelps, if you don't stop taking those cupcakes and cookies from their bags, we're going to put you in one of your old man's boxes. Do you understand that, Digger Odell? And they all laughed because Digger Odell was a part of a radio show back then. So they all knew about Digger Odell, the friendly undertaker. So when he called me, put you in one of your old man's boxes, Digger Odell, the next day in practice, it was Digger Odell to get the bats. Digger Odell, we need more water. Digger Odell, get the balls. So the digger stuck, and that's how I got that name Digger. But what was interesting, when I got out of Ryder in 63, I come home because that fall I'm supposed to go to Syracuse to go to Simmons School and Bombing for one year and then go in business with my dad after I got my embalming's license and become an undertaker. But while I'm home that summer, the high school coach, a guy named Tom Winterbottom, who was from Ohio, his first year coaching Beacon High, they go undefeated, 20-0. They didn't have a state tournament, but they had sectionals. He asked me to coach the summer league team in, in Beacon because he wasn't allowed to coach because that was the state rules. So he's giving me the X's and O's, we're up the playground, walking through stuff. And next thing you know, I get hooked on coaching. So I have a meeting with mom and dad, say, can I delay in bombing school for a year, go back to Ryder, get my business degree, my master's, and see if I can teach and coach. And I said, Richard, go ahead and do it. Well, I'm back at Ryder with a guy named uh, Bob Greenwood's the head coach, and Tom Petroff, who was a baseball coach, and uh, my mentor became a real great guy, but he's assistant basketball coach. And um, Little Ryder College back in 64 was going to play mighty NYU. In the old days, Madison Square Garden. Yeah, it was St. John's, Manhattan, Fordham, Columbia, Seton Hall. But NYU with Lou Rossini, and they had two great players, Happy Harrison. And when we were going to play them, they had not lost a game at University Heights where NYU was up in the Bronx since 1944. And this is 64. They lost games in the Garden but not at University Heights. I scout them against Iona and Hofstra. Come back and tell the coaches, if we do ABC on offense, ABC on defense, we can beat them. They say, Digger, you put in the game plan. For two days, I'm with the guys I played with the year before at Ryder, giving them the strategy and how we can beat NYU. We go up there, and we win that game, and that's when I said, I can do this stuff. That was, that was the moment that convinced me. And I tell that to a lot of kids today, college kids, people, young men, young women in their 20s, you have a dream, make it become a reality. And you'll have a turning point during that time period when you get something done that no one else thought you could get done. Well, that game with Ryder beating NYU was a turning point for me to become a coach. Well, the next year I'm coaching junior high school number four in Trenton. Then I go up to St. Gabriel's. And from there I go to the University of Pennsylvania as an assistant with a guy named Dick Carter, uh, who was at Ryder the year I left. And when Jack McCluskey left Penn to go to Wake Forest, Carter went back to Penn to be head coach. And Petroff, the baseball coach, says, take Digger with me. So he takes Digger with me, with him, 
And the next thing you know, for four years there, we built Penn into a national power by recruiting some great players and not just winning the Ivy League. But then the Fordham job opens. And this was amazing, Brett. The team was 10 and 15 the year before I get there. I take the job, and we had a 6'9 center who was going to be the turning point. I figured, well, he's going to be a sophomore. Freshman didn't play back then. If he becomes the turning point, and we go 15 and 10, we go to the NIT, I turn this program around. The first week of November, he tears his knee up. He's done. My next biggest guy is 6'5". And Frank McLaughlin, who was an assistant with me at Fordham, who played at Fordham, he convinced me to start four guards. I was starting three guards, and we were full court pressing. We started four guards. Kenny Charles was the fourth one. Charlie Elverton, Jackie Bjork, Billy Maynard, and Tommy Sullivan was a 6'5 center. We pressed 94 feet. That same team went 26-3. and three. We beat Notre Dame with a famous Austin Carr in Madison Square Garden in front of 19,000. Lose to Al McGuire, who was like number two in the country, the famous Marquette coach. We lose to them in overtime. That team went 26-3. and three. I was there for one year. Then I end up at Notre Dame after that one year and spent 20 years here. And, of course, the most important stat I ever tell anybody was not that we knocked off seven number one teams, starting with Bill Walton in UCLA in the 88-game winning streak in, in, uh, uh, back in 74. It was that I coached 56 guys. All 56 guys got their degrees, and they all have a life after basketball. That was my job with those guys, getting them ready. Because to me, teaching them how to be successful in the game of life, um, that was the most important thing. So they had a life after basketball. And the four characteristics for leadership, to me, is giving me somebody that's creative, somebody that's a risk taker, somebody that has the right street smarts, and somebody knows how to be a survivor. That's what you do to teach leadership. And all these guys are very successful today in their life after basketball. So that's what my my whole career was in the 20 years coaching in Notre Dame. And I, I think you bring up a great point there because, you know, in today's game, it's it's so fast and, and in all sports and, and parents are so involved and, and my kid's going to be this and my kid's going to be that. I remember when yeah. my oldest son, who's who's finishing up at Princeton now, talking about wow. – where he wanted to go to college and everybody was, well, is he a baseball guy? He's that. And I, I think it's so important. What you were talking about was it's more life is about more than basketball. These, these kids all are getting their degrees and going on to be successful in life. And that's what I wanted my, you know, for all my kids is I don't care what little league, how much the little league coach knows or how much the high school coach knows. I want to know that when I'm not there, is he teaching my son to be a man and teaching him positive yep. things that are that are going to benefit him in life? It doesn't matter. He he can get all the baseball he wants from from him and from me and my family, yeah. but I want to I want a man that's going to mold him, you know, f- take him from a young man to a man. And I think that's a really good point you make about your philosophy and coaching these kids because they are, you know, some of these kids go on to be professionals, but, but a lot of them don't. And, and it's how they come out of college. Uh, yeah. You were able to be a big part of that. And by the way, <clears throat> the reason I haven't touched on your coach, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a rough spot for me being a Trojan. And now I got to talk about Notre Dame <laughs> basketball, you know, which I, I, I can't stand you yeah. guys more on the no, football but you side. Did, you, but. you understand this. <laughs> When we used to, we're the first team ever to win four straight at Pauley Pavilion to beat UCLA. And we ended Bill Walton's 88 game winning streak. That's when you love Notre Dame because we own the Bruins. 
<laughs> that's right. Our stepsister school, UCLA. That's, yeah. that's what we call yeah. it, SC. So tell me this. Yeah. When when people come up and they meet they meet you for the first time, what do you ask more? Are you talk are do they ask you about Notre Dame basketball? Or do, or do they ask you about ending that eighty-eight game streak? That the, the great John Wooden. Hey, let me tell you what. I think more people, and we only have eleven thousand four hundred in that arena. I think the people I talked who said they've been in that game. I think there's thirty thousand at that game because when I run into people, oh, bigger. I was at that UCLA game back in seventy-four. Yeah, that's the number one thing that comes up is the UCLA game in seventy-four where. Uh, Bill Walton, who, who was one of the great guys, and he's a great friend, and John Wooden. John Wooden coached high school basketball at South Bend Central here in South Bend. He played at Purdue. He's from Indiana before he ends up long run going to UCLA where he won those 10 national championships. But uh, the thing was, I look at what people say to me, and you know, and I listen and talk about it. And that, if that's what they want, that's it. But I I would say that's probably the number one thing. And it was it was amazing because in the 20 years I coached here, we had some great teams. We got to the Final Four once. We never got that national championship. But we did knock off seven number one teams. And people didn't forget those teams because after UCLA in 74, it was Bill Cartwright who played with Jordan and the Bulls. He was at San Francisco. They came in here 29-0. and 0. And then it was uh, Dean Meminger up at Marquette with Al McGuire. They came in here. And then – and um, uh, after that, it was a Paul and double overtime uh, when they were number one in 19. And it was amazing about 80 81 season. We beat Kentucky in, uh, between Christmas and New Year's and Freedom Hall in Louisville. They were number one. And then that February, we beat Ralph Sampson in Virginia in Chicago. And, that's, and John Paxson was on that team who played with the Bulls and. and Worked with the Bulls administration for about 17 years to retire this year. But for 80-81 season, we beat two number one teams. And then, of course, in 77, Dean Smith and, and North Carolina, they were number one. So there's a lot of great moments that happened during that time period. But I think more importantly was when I tell people, you know, like LaFonso Ellis, who right now is doing halftime on ESPN, uh, who played in the pros, who got his degree in business, and uh, started the small business here. He's been very successful with what he's done in his career. Scott Paddock is president of Chicago Speedway. Pat Paxton was the Bull, Bulls. Brooks Boyer was vice president of marketing for the White Sox. Brooks was uh, – I had him when he graduated. He was a guard from Michigan. I said, look, take an internship with the Bulls. As an intern, I tell us a college graduate today, don't worry about making sixty, seventy thousand dollars 70000 your first shot. Take an internship when you get – people to know you and understand you. And when the right job opens up in that company, you're going to make it and go because that's your best resume because people have seen you do what you've done for two years. Well, Brooks was a, was an intern two years with the Bulls. A, a job opens up in marketing. He gets it. And then the next thing you know, um, a job opens up with the White Sox. And Jerry Reinstorf brings him over, and he's vice president today even of, of the Chicago White Sox and marketing. So those are the things that I look at when I bring certain teams up in certain years. I say, well, here's what those guys are today with their life after basketball. And that's the most important thing you can do. Stan Wilcox, who was on a freshman on that Final Four team, uh, went to law school after, and now he's number three at the NCAA in Indianapolis. A guy named 
Jameer Jackson, who's from, um, he's a, he lives out and um, he was from Peoria, Illinois. He ends up becoming now the guy that runs Hertz Car Rental. So that's what the most important thing is when you're talking to people is give the follow-up to where these guys are today. Wow, that's that that is that's pretty cool stuff. And and because most kids, they come out and it's like, no, give me the job, give me the money. And, yeah, I know. And but do you know the other thing, Brent? When you think about seventy percent of the guys that play in the NFL and NBA, seventy percent five years after they retire are bankrupt because they weren't taught how to manage the game of life with the money yeah. they had. Imagine that. That, that, that. I mean, that, five years after they retired, they're bankrupt. That's yeah. horrible. No, that's and the, that's and, and the NBA and the NFL should be teaching these guys how to manage their lives. Yeah. I, I remember uh, a few years back, MLB was trying to initiate a, a program, um, and, and it was five pronged. But one of the one of the thing is one of the things was helping these guys manage their money. And the problem was getting people to buy into a player because you know, as a young yeah. man, and, and you're sitting in that clubhouse and you're making ten million dollars, yeah. and you have somebody come up to you and say, "Hey, yeah." Buy into this program. We'll t- you know, it, yeah. most guys are going to yeah. kind of give you the, hey, we got this, yeah. you know, and move it along. Yeah. But I don't know. But if you can get the right guy to initiate and say, hey, this happened to me, listen up, you know, and then it, and, and it snowballs from there. But well, anyway, I, I, I thought this all along, and it's tough when you get the guys that sign right out of high school. But the thing is this, and I've said this, but the NCAA won't do it. When you sign a grant and aid, and it's a scholarship for four years, room, board, tuition, books, fees, and you get um, so much money a month now, et cetera, et cetera. I also think that your first pro contract, three years, I don't care if it's football, basketball, baseball, that the college should handle that contract for you. Their legal aid office should negotiate. There's your lawyer. Your your endowment company, a part of the university where they invest money, they take over your account. Let's say you're making even say you're making three million. So they take they take two and a half million and invest it for you for three years. You get five hundred thousand a year to live on. So and at the same time you're learning what they're doing and why in the off season. You're with them. You're back at college getting this transition so that you don't blow it. And put yourself in a position so that with what you're doing and how you're making it, there's no more 70% are bankrupt. Uh, it'll be about 5% of bankrupt. Yeah. No, it's in- interesting because, you know, I haven't heard these things before. That's an, that's an interesting take is, is the college angle and, and kind of, you know, I, 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 I hesitate for a second and I think, well, how would how would the player embrace it? Because you know when they're young, it's hey, don't tell me what yep. to do with my money type thing. But I think in the long yeah, run, and they're you're posse. Right. Most of these guys are posse takes their money. Yep. You know, all their buddies yep. are hanging around. They got eight guys in their posse and they're they're taking their money, or the agent's a bad agent, he takes their money. Yep. So so as much as I don't want to talk about it, and on a serious note, obviously, Notre Dame, uh being there as long as you were, twenty years, a lot comes with that being the head coach of the fighting Irish. That's a grind. And especially as long as you did it, what did, what did that entail? And did it ever get to you? Did you ever want to walk away earlier than 20 years? What was that like? Because as, as great of a position it is and, and 
you know, it's just as mainstream as you can get. What was that grind like for all those years? Well, going back and growing back up, growing up in the Hudson Valley back as a kid, Army Notre Dame was always a big game. And going back to when Newt Rockney coached football at Notre Dame, he's the one that marketed Notre Dame football. We used to play Army in Yankee Stadium, or he'd play Southern Cal in the Coliseum. And that, that gave them that national flair. So as I'm growing up as a kid, of course, West Point, I'm like a big Army fan. I used to go down there a lot on weekends and watch them play. It's only about 20 minutes away from my house. But in 1965, when I was at St. Gabriel's High School, I write Eric Parsegan, head football coach, a letter. He's head football coach at Notre Dame. I write him a letter, and I said, I love Notre Dame. I love the essence of Notre Dame and what you're doing in football. Six years later, I was there. I said, what you're doing in football, someday I want to do in basketball. Six years later, I was there as head coach at Notre Dame. And I did that because from St. Gay's, I went to Penn for four years, Fordham for one, and then ended up getting a Notre Dame job. And 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 seventy one seventy two, but the thing was, what we did and how we did it. I mean, the place and the reason why I still live here, uh, loving the campus for what it is. And people see this campus. I don't believe when I was here, there was only like maybe six thousand students. Uh, now there's like eight thousand. There was four thousand when I began, and we weren't co-ed. We were just men. And then in seventy three, Father Hesburgh made it co-ed. Um, there's a spiritual side of this place, Brett, that is really, really important to me. I'm a cancer survivor twice. I've beaten prostate cancer, and that's 11 years ago, and I've beaten um, bladder cancer, and that's like uh, eight years ago. And from that standpoint, um, knowing and understanding the spirituality side of this place uh it's it's very special. And Father Hesburgh, who was president for 35 years and who I think is a living saint, he was the godfather of the Civil Rights Act. Back in 57, President Eisenhower asked him to get three other men from the South, three men from the North, including him, and write a Civil Rights Act, which they did up the Land of Lakes in Wisconsin, where Notre Dame has uh, a retreat place. And they took it to Eisenhower and gave it to him in 57, and he gave it to Kennedy, who was going to use it to run as a second term, and then he got assassinated. But President Johnson in 1964 got the Civil Rights Act passed. Well, to me, Father Hesburgh is the godfather of the Civil Rights Act. And he was more than just a priest and president of Notre Dame. Uh, people knew him all around the world. And he was a big inspiration for me. And I tell people I was a disciple. I'm a disciple of Hesburgh because of what he believed and how he was spiritually and how this campus has special places to where you just know this is a spirituality. And I always say to people, you got to be ready mentally, physically, and spiritually to compete in the game of life. Mentally, physically, and spiritually. And if you got those three things working for you, you're ready to go for it. And that's what this place still does for me. And uh, I just love being around here. It's it just one of those things. And, yeah, after 20, minutes, uh, 20 years of coaching – it was time, and, and I had a great friend, George H.W. Bush, who I knew way back in the early 70s uh, before he became president, and I wanted to work for him. So his last year, it was my year to go work for him in the White House, and I ran a program called Weed and Seed. Weed meant to take out the bad element in a neighborhood 
because the neighborhood wanted it out, and Seed was to get the neighborhood back in shape, getting guys who were dropouts, get them in the school where they get a GED, and then go teach them in a, in a, a, a school where they learn how to become a carpenter, electrician, or plumber. And, you know, electricians can make sixty, seventy thousand 70000 a year and live to be 80 versus being dead at 20. And and the bridge from Weed to Seed was community policing, getting the police out of the squad cars and get the neighborhood watch people to go out and take out the bad element to keep it out because the people don't want it in that neighborhood. And that's something we have lost over the years that was working when I was in the White House that one year for President Bush. And then after that, I then went to work. I was doing CBS sports in the off season when we get knocked out of a tournament. Uh, and then when um, it happened, I went to ESPN for 20 years. And 20 years to me is where you got the opportunities to move on to other things that you want to do in your life. And so coaching for 20, doing ESPN for 20. I was on the Citizen Stamp Advisory Committee for 20 years. I This is an interesting story, sidebar. As a kid growing up in the Hudson Valley, we used to get the weekly reader every week, but once a month there'd be a commander stamp in there, three-cent stamp. And we'd all go up to the post office, buy a stamp, put in our stamp album. So when the 84 Olympics were in L.A., they were going to unveil in 83 at Notre Dame during the National AAU Basketball Tournament that summer the Olympic stamp for basketball. And so I had to be there because I'm coach of basketball at Notre Dame. So I'm at breakfast with these people in, uh, from the Postal Service, and I start telling them how I was a stamp collector as a kid, and they said, what? I said, yeah. I come about the weekly reader, three cents, you know, once a month, and we'd put that three-cent stamp, commemorative stamp on our album. They said, you still collect stamps? I said, yeah, I collect the duck stamps because the sheets are really uh, special to keep. They said, you should be on a committee. I said, what committee? The Citizen Stamp Advisory Committee for the Postmaster General. It's a diverse group of about 13 people, and that committee decides what 50 stamps the postmaster is going to put out every year. So I got on that committee, and what was amazing, I did that for over 20 years, but some of the stamps I did were a lot of, I was chairman, obviously, of the sports committee, but I did a stamp for Newt Rockney, who was head football coach in Notre Dame for his 100th birthday. And we're playing University of Maryland between Christmas and New Year's back there in 85, 86. And I go to the White House with a guy named John Simpson, who's director of Secret Service. I said, I want my team to have a tour of the West Wing. Show them the president's office. So John and I are walking around. I said, how can I get President Reagan to come out next year? Not as the president, but as the Gipper, because he played in the Gipper movie. Uh, he was the Gipper and with Rockney at Notre Dame. Pat O'Brien played Rockney and, and, and Reagan played the Gipper. He says, I want him to come out and, you know, handle the first day of issue, the new Rockney stamp, which is going to come out in the spring of 87. He says, well, come to the White House and talk to him. I see. I just knock on the door and get shot by Secret Service. So the May before we did that, the following March, I go to the White House and have a meeting with President Reagan and say to him, hey, Mr. President, I need you to come out uh, to be the gipper for the 100th anniversary of the new Rockney stamp. And he agreed to do it. And we had it staged in the basketball room. There's 12,000 people there. And Tim Brown won the Heisman Trophy that year. And he's sitting in the first row with the football team. I had President Reagan throw him a pass that he caught. We told everybody else, stay away from the ball. Tim Brown's going to catch it from Reagan. And to this day, when I say Tim Brown, I said, forget that Heisman Trophy. The best pass you ever caught was a pass from the Gipper. But that was another sidebar of my life that I just got hooked on and just loved doing it for all those years with the sports stamps and a lot of baseball stamps in there in that 20-year that period.
Now, Tim Brown, that's shoot, that's my era. That's when I was at SC. I remember Tim. Yeah, I remember Tim Brown. Uh, 20 years of singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game or throwing out the first pitch. And I got my own first pitch worries right now. I mean, you'd think for someone <laughs> like me, that'd be a walk in the park and I'll, and I'll be there. And if, if my son or family members around, oh, Brett, you better go to the rubber. And I just think, I just want to get it because everybody expects, yeah, I'll throw it right down the middle. I got the yips a little <laughs> bit. What, what, what's, what's, what's easier? Well, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. I used to have a, a young kid next door. He's a sophomore in high school. He'd warm me up from a neighbor across the street. I would start the week I'm going to go up and go out in the backyard, my alleyway, and I would just practice throwing. And the key was, you know, to know the distance. And I know he's going to throw off the rubber. And it's, when you release it, you got to release it at the top of your head and then follow through and step towards the plate. And the most important thing is, if it, if, because at my age, if it's high, it's going to come down lower. And it comes in oh, there. Oh, it's gravity. And it's there to strike zone. Yeah. And so <laughs> when I go out to that mound, I look at him, shake him down like he's throwing me two pitches. I say, no, I don't want that. I don't want that. And then I just take it, step towards the plate and release it at the top. And I'll tell you, I got to be honest with you. One year I did throw it in the dirt and they, <laughs> they pull you when you do that. Yeah. And I told them, do you go to, do you go to the rubber or you stay on the dirt? <laughs> no, I, st- I, no. So what I did was it was one of the pitchers that caught me and I said, throw it back. And he threw it back. I got back in the mound and then I threw a strike and I walked off the mound and saluted the crowd. <laughs> I think I'm the first guy ever the one to throw him in the dirt and then pick it up and throw it back to him and throw a strike. Well, but the last time I was up there, I did throw one and, and I jumped in the air cause Bill Walton, the famous Bill Walton, he was at San Diego that spring, and I'm up there like in August. He was there in June, and he threw one that was wide, bouncing the dirt, maybe 10 feet, 10 feet past the catcher on the, le- on the right side of the catcher facing the mound. He threw it horribly, and I told ESPN, get that on tape. Please get that on tape. And so the real reason why I was so fired up two years ago, last year we did it, was because I knew Bill Walton and I were going to do a basketball game that following December. Notre Dame was going to play UCLA at home, and he and I were going to do the game. <laughs> so what happened was <laughs> I threw that strike, and I jumped in the air. I got a picture of my two feet as I'm jumping, maybe six inches off the ground. And I, I was happy because I said, I got Bill Walton. That's the first thing in my mind when I did it year 21. So here we are, we're doing a game. And – during the game, I say, hey, Bill, how did you do uh, at, uh, when you threw out that first pitch in San Diego? And the producer rolled the tape and showed the pitch. And Walton's like, <laughs> he's frowning. And then I said, well, look, here's what I did at Wrigley in August. And I threw that strike. And I had him on that telecast. He was dying after I did that to him. So there's more, more that goes on behind the scenes that people don't realize. I'll tell you, I, I mean, for me, for someone like me, this should be a walk in the park. You could blindfold me when I was 35 <laughs> years old and I could, I could hit, I could hit a bullseye from a hundred feet, but you put me out there 40 feet and I got to lob one to the catcher. I'm, I, I try to be cool. You know me, my personality, I'm cool. I'm here, but inside I'm going, just don't screw this up. It's, it's the weirdest <laughs> thing. It's the weirdest thing. <laughs> 
All right. No. What was the uh, what was the toughest part for you going from the court to the booth? I'm doing a little bit of this right now, being on this side of the mic. It's kind of a learning process yeah. for me. But as far as when when you're doing play by play, and you have to, you're forced to kind of critique to what's yep. acceptable and and what do you consider crossing the line? Well, cross the line. I would never criticize a coach for his decision. You know, if if it turns into a bad play or it turns into a bad defense, I would always say, well, that's the the choice they made. But some other options to that, rather than playing a two-three zone, go to a one-three-one zone, or rather than playing the man-to-man defense and they're making threes then play them tight man-to-man. If they start hitting threes, make them drive. You know, I'd always always do options. And the two parts of the games that used to drive me crazy, even as a coach, turnovers and points off turnovers. If, you, if you're having 20 turnovers and you give up 30 points, that's why you're losing the game. Your turnovers, they're getting points off your turnovers. Or you're shooting threes, and now – you're like 0 for 15 shooting threes. But how many offensive rebounds do you have off those missed threes? Because long shot, long rebound. Then send four to the glass. Let them re- it always takes two seconds for that ball to go to the class, to the rim. I don't care if it's a layup or I don't care if it's a three. Then for two seconds, break loose. And if it's a long shot, get to the free throw line area because that's where that ball is going to come off. And get offensive rebounds. Even if you got to send four to the glass. Well, if you send four to the glass and they get the rebound, well, then the guy next to the rebounder pressure him so the other three can get back. And now you got your transition defense. So these are things that I would analyze, being a coach, but never embarrassing the other coach for what he did or what he didn't do. And boy, that's why all the coaches love me because I took care of them. You had you had a almost a go to as how you do it because you could do it. You could do it professionally, and it's still criticism. So you get you you maintain the respect of your audience at the same time yep. you're getting your point across in a good way. Yep. You know what drives me that. nuts in baseball? And I think if I was a manager, I'd put down a ten thousand dollar fine. If you got guys on base and there's two outs, and you take a third strike, that's a ten thousand dollar fine for strike three. <laughs> I hate that yeah, when guys yeah, but, swing on a well, third you still, strike. You, you still got the human element. You still got the umpire. Are you going to critique? Are you going to? No. Are you going to? Are you going to sit no. down afterwards and go? All right, you got screwed on that one. So I'm going to give you a break on the ten thousand, no. or if it's just ten thousand. No. Here, let's think about this. You know this, and I know you know it better than me because you played. That yes, ball I do, is going to be around. That ball is going to be around the strike zone. Right. It may not. Okay, so I don't care if it's six inches outside, six inches inside, six inches high, six inches low. You've got that bad, and you've got one job with two outs, two strikes, and men on base. You make – if it's outside, you got, you're going to step over. If it's inside, you're going to step out. But make contact on that pitch. Don't stand there and take a third strike or beg for the umpire to call a ball. Well, Digger, this is more important. You're saying with two outs, okay? For me, yeah, it's more important with one out, runner on third. Runner on third, less than two outs. That's a, that's a ribby 
position. Okay. Cause a lot of times yeah. in field back, yeah. all you got to do is touch that thing, touch it. Yeah. So with two strikes, there's no way you're going down on strikes. I agree with you. Um, and, and I think I try not to be too critical, uh, of, of, of the players today. I, th- I think there's a lot of positive things in the game, but, but I, I have some things that, that are kind of pet peeves of mine. I think the strikeouts become acceptable and I don't think it's ever acceptable, especially with runners out there. Cause if you don't swing in, yeah. you don't have a chance, but yeah. I, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. I see the players kind of okay with striking out a lot. I struck right, out. Do yourself, times. Do, do yourself a favor. Next time you're doing a game or next time you're watching games. Just keep track of the number of times with two outs, two outs, and the guy takes a third strike. It'll blow you away. That's ten. More than you been. Well, okay. So you're. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. That's my pet peeve in baseball. (laughs) You think you could? You think you could be a big league skipper? Is that outside your pay grade? No. I always wanted take, to coach football, but Aaron wouldn't let me do it. I was going to say, let me coach one Southern Cal game, and I'll let you coach one UCLA game. And Aaron said no. <laughs> wow. I think you, I think once you're a coach, you're always a coach. And I, I don't care what the sport is. because if, I, agree, I agree with you. It transcends it. Yep. And yep. if you keep those basic principles that I, I think you've outlined. Yep. Uh, during this yep. podcast, I, I think that transcends to any sport, especially at a high level. If you keep those, yep. you know, and, and you learn along the way, because it's still a, a, a it's still about reading people and getting the most out of the yeah. people on that court, on that field. You got to treat different guys different ways. Some guys you got to kick in the butt. Some guys you got to give a hug to get the same result. So I actually, you know, I asked that in jest a little bit. But when I think about it, you could have probably done it. Well, the thing is this, too. And in my sport, basketball, if I'm going to play, you know, the number one teams in the country, I would always never show anything in the first half that you want to use that can help you win the game because they can make halftime adjustments. But if you save it for the second half, especially the last four minutes of the game, that's when you would make your runs. I mean, the UCLA game, we're down 322, we're down 11 points, and we shut them out 12-zip. We turn around, we press them. They go 0 for 6, we go 6 for 6, they had four turnovers. When we played Ralph Sampson in Virginia and Chicago, we're down 6 with a minute and a half, and we press them, and they know what to do with it. And and we end up scoring eight straight points and beating them. Uh, and in 87, we played North Carolina. Dean Smith, his own offense – this is kind of weird. He would have a box overload, which means, let's say, the ball's coming down with the guard, and he's at top of the circle. There's a guy in the left wing, a guy in the left post, low post, and a guy in the left corner. That's the four, a guy in the right wing. Then they would flip-flop, throw it over and be an overload in the right wing. So what we did, when I saw that, I said, huh. And it was a, a nip-and-tuck game. We were down 16 in the first half. And when you're down 16 in the first half, you get one job. Get it to nine by halftime because that means you got momentum going, going into halftime. Well, with Dean Smith in that game, they come down, they overload to the left. We let Jeff Lebo with the ball on the left wing shoot a three. <laughs> he misses it, but they have nobody in position to get an offensive rebound because <laughs> they're all on the left side. 
one in the left corner, one in the low post, one in the left high post. So that was a weakness with that zone offense that we saved until we needed it at the end of the game. And that's where you steal a lot of these games because you win them in the last minute or last two minutes, especially when you're playing against the number one teams. Yeah. That's that's interesting. I mean, it's it, it's I like it because it makes me think about it and it's, think about strategy from taking it from baseball to basketball. Yeah, and it's interesting yeah. for me to listen. Speaking of that, we, well, we I, get th- I think this. I think I think the power of the bunt is underestimated. And why, guy? You, I learned how to bunt in little league. Why? Why can't these guys bunt in the majors today? Not asked to. God. Don't work. Don't work on it. I mean, you you take a guy like a Larry Walker. Right. Can you imagine like if a Larry Walker was playing today, he will yep. bunt every time. And everybody complains about the shift. I said, drop a couple bunts yeah. down and, and force them to not shift you. That's how you get a non shift. Yeah. I'll tell you, if yeah. if they would if they would shift me like that, I would bunt every single time until they didn't shift yep. on me anymore. And I, it drives me crazy. It drives me crazy to watch, yep. but. Um, no. That's that's a part of the game right now that I don't like. I'd like to see the strategy change a little how about, bit. And how think, about this? How about this in basketball? You ready for this free throw shoot? Uh, drives me nuts. Let me just say this: I'm going to give you a system that beats the pressure. The system to beat the pressure, and what's that mean? Okay, the free throw line. There is a dot in the middle of every free throw line on the court because that's where they measure to get to the rim and all that. What I want you to do is three things. Put your feet, spread your feet the width of your shoulders and the dots in the middle of your legs. Your knees are for flex. Your knees are for flex. Your hand is to release the ball, but grab the rim after you shoot it. So that if I'm going to take three dribbles before I shoot it, the last thing I want to do before I shoot that ball is take a deep breath. And you feel your whole body relax. Now, you shoot that ball. You flex your knees to help you get it up, but grab the rim after you shoot it. And believe me, the diameter of that rim is 18 inches. The diameter of the ball is 9 inches. If I do this right, we used to put a rim in front of the free throw line on the floor. Some days I'd put one ball in there. Some days I'd put two balls in there to say, all you want to do is get it up over the rim and let it do the rest. Even if it bounces around because your hand's grabbing a rim and it bounces up, hits the iron, bounces off the glass and bounces in. You made the one you miss. So there's a system to beat the pressure. Has nothing to do with you. Oh, I got to, oh, 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 I got to one on one. I got to make them. We're down one. No. The system beats the pressure. You get up there and do it with your feet spread. That means your body's in balance. And I say, I, t- I get to kids and after you shoot, I leave your hand up there. Now I push them in the chest when they got their feet staggered and they're off balance after they shoot it. But with your feet balanced, the width of your shoulders, now I push your chest. You're in balance after the shot. Your knees help you push it up. Your hand's going up and grabbing the rim after you shoot it. Even if you got one hand helping you get the ball up, the other hand grab the rim after you shoot it to have that system beat the pressure. And that's what uh, – it drives me nuts when I see teens missing free throws today. 
doesn't well, take, happen. It take, it I had guys that couldn't make them, and then you end up with with the system to beat the pressure to shooting seventy five percent. Well, get your brain out of the way, and and t- that's it. Give it to a, a big league hitter. When are we at our you best? When we're not thinking about, oh, I got to get, the, you know, I got to get a base hit yeah, right, right here. I'm one for my last seven. If yeah. if you can get your brain out of the way, and, and whether it's okay, I, I got my checkpoints. I go here to here, and like you said, yeah. knees yeah. get the, you know, get your knees flexed. Grab the. Oh, you're thinking about everything yeah. except for making or missing yeah. that free throw. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Same thing in baseball. To me, in baseball, when you're up there with that bat, you got one job. Your eyes have to make contact with the ball. The bat does the rest. Keep it simple. Springfield, we going to get it done? <laughs> That'd be nice. Uh, you know, going back to St. Gabe's, going back to the year at Fordham was unbelievable. I mean, that team owned New York City to go 26-3 and three and what they did to those teams in the garden. And then, of course, the 20 years of Notre Dame, uh, very special, very special. And uh, it just wasn't a number one wins over seven teams, it was the 56 out of 56 got their degrees. And, I, and let me tell you, I had a guy named Billy Hanslick who played in the NBA, and um, he's out in Denver now where he lives. But he was in engineering. I never saw him on Mondays, just if we had a game that night. But if he had a class that was important for engineering, take the class, don't worry about practice. I had a guy named Barry Spencer who was an architect major. Same thing. I never saw him on Thursdays. And that's what it was. You're, you're here at Notre Dame to get the right degree for your reasons down the road. And, yeah, you're not going to miss every practice, but if you got a class you need, take that class. Don't worry about practice. That's what I did. Very, very cool. And uh, I call you the, the future Hall of Famer. I wish you the best on that. Dear, I, I appreciate you coming on the Boone podcast. This is it's been very interesting and very enlightening. I didn't I didn't know you're so world traveled. <laughs> well, but what we do what we do at the end of the heaven my huh? What we do here at the end of the Boone podcast is we get a question from the fans and okay. the question's asked by none other than Dan Levy. Dan, you there? Oh, I'm here. Hi, Digger. Hi. This question, sir, comes from Sean in Long Beach. You guys have already touched on it. Digger, what did John Wooden say after you beat the team and snapped that winning streak? Well, it's interesting about John Wooden and his life. And uh, I got to know him very, very well, obviously, after we coached. And he was really a special person and a special friend. Uh, I never forget when he died. Um, It was a sad time. He was such a great guy. The thing was this. When we coached against each other, what was interesting, he wrote a book, They Call Me Coach. And this is back in like December of 73, 74, 73 before we played him in 74. And in the book, he said, if I would never call timeout during a game, because if you call timeout, it's a sign of weakness. That never left me as a coach, Digger Phelps. He would never call a timeout. So in that game, we're down 11 with 3.22 to go. We come out and we score. Shoemaker gets the ball out of bounds underneath and scores. And then he steals the inbounds pass because we switched Shoemaker and Brokaw with 6'3", one of our guards. And Tommy Curtis threw the lob the ball up, but Shoemaker stole it. And it was a lob pass inbounds to Bill Walton, but he didn't see Shoemaker come in there. And so he scores four. Now, Dantley steals a pass, comes down. That's six in a row. 
Next thing you know, they miss a shot. We come down. Gary broke all left wing, hits a shot. That's eight in a row. Next thing you know, Bill Walton looks over to the bench, just looks over to see if Wooden's going to call timeout. Nothing. John's just sitting there with his arms folded, legs crossed. They come down, turn the ball over. We come down and score a bro call. And as Brokaw scores, Bill Walton now goes back because it's 10 in a row. And you can see him put on his hands, on his hips, signaling timeout. We got it on the film. It wouldn't, wouldn't call timeout. Until now we come down, Brokaw again on left wing, but Tommy Curtis, who's guarding Dwight Clay, leaves Clay to go double-team Brokaw with Wilkes at the foul line on the left side. Brokaw sees Clay, the Iceman, open in the right corner where he faded because Curtis wasn't guarding him. Well, Dwight Clay, the year before, hits a buzzer shot against Al McGuire and Marquette to end the 81-game winning streak in Milwaukee, 81-home game winning streak in Milwaukee at the Mecca. Iceman gets the ball from Brokaw, shoots it, it goes in. We're up. We score 12 in a row. We come down, hold the scoreless, and they can't score. Shumay gets the last rebound, throws in the air. And I just, because everybody, 4,000 people rush the floor. And I just, you know, go down and shake John's hand and leave. The year before, see, he broke uh, San Francisco's 66-game winning streak out of our place. And I gave him the game ball after the game. I went over and gave him the game ball. I said, here, John, you've earned this. And that was it. But then later, years when I'm doing television, he would always show up to games. I'd sit and talk to him a little bit before the games. And, and uh, and then when he passed, it was sad because I'd always call him on his birthday every year. Like I call Bob Knight on his birthday every year. And uh, he was just really one of those coaches that just had a way to get it done. And he always got great players. And it was funny because when it used to be the Pac-8, and then it became a Pac-10 because they invite Arizona, Arizona State. And I said, you guys shouldn't do that because now Arizona, Arizona State are going to come into Southern Cal and start recruiting your players. So it became a Pac-10. And that's what happened. And that's why all of a sudden after all those years, you see even, even up to today, it's a Pac-12 because of Colorado and uh, Utah in that conference. Um that really took away from recruiting where they used to dominate recruiting in basketball. Maybe Southern Cal was the football school, as we all know. But UCLA with all those kids from Southern California, and even Bill Walton's son went to Arizona. So that, that was the beginning of the end for that cycle. But Wooden was a special guy and a special friend. And uh, he was always good for the game, and we became great friends. As a matter of fact, I uh, I sent the ball out to him, and he signed it, the game ball, which we kept. And uh, I've got one of the scorebooks that he signed. And he just uh, was always one of those people that when we beat him, it was something special. But more importantly, he was just a great coach and a great guy. And when he coached at South Bend Central, uh, I, saw, I saw him one year out at Bel Air, Bel Air Country Club. They used to have a a golf tournament for fundraising for scholarships for Southern Cal and UCLA. It was a charity golf tournament. He's being honored this night. So I sit down with him and I say, Hey, do you ever hear from your players in South Penn? He says, yeah, we had a reunion. I said, what? 
I said, how many guys showed up? He was 35. I said, what are their ages? He says, oh, they're all in their 70s. And it was just like pass us on, Pepper. But that was vintage John Wooden in his life. And he was just more than a coach, but he was a great coach. All right. Well, Coach, thank you so much for jumping on the Brett Boom Podcast. We really appreciate it. Well, I really enjoy it. Brett's a special guy. And anytime I get an interview with you guys, you know how to get a hold of me. Mailbag. You know that sound, Brett. That means it is time for the Brett Boone Mailbag. It's where we take all the questions that Brett gets pretty much during the entire week in the last couple of weeks. Send to him on Twitter, at TheBoone29 on Instagram, as well as Facebook. We get lots of questions there, and we do our best to grab the, the best three of the week. So here we go. You ready? Let's do it, Dan. All right. All right, Booner. San Diego. Sean is where he is. And he wants to know, Boone, did you play high school football? I did not. Uh, my high, my football career ended after eighth grade. Uh, I went into high school my my freshman year. I was five one, a buck something, and uh, my football career was over. <laughs> All right, thank you, Sean. Let's get back on to the old bag, and we got Miles in Springfield, Massachusetts. Brett. Could you have played outfield if you wanted to? What about catcher? Uh, outfield, blindfolded, catcher, anybody could catch. That's the last place. You, you know, I got, I got taught well from, from Pops. So the last position you go to is is catcher. That's gotcha. where he ended up having a great career. But outfield, I, I tell all my buddies that were outfielders and great outfielders, it, it, it's simple. You know why you're in the outfield, right? Because you ain't good enough to play the infield. There's your answer. <laughs> what about first baseman? They just kind of sit there with their their hands out. No, I, I say it in jest. Obviously, their skill, but but for a middle infielder, outfield is is uh, it's kind of an insult to us. Gotcha. And, and my outfield buddies right now are MF and me all over the place. But it's true, Cameron especially. It's true. <laughs> we'll do, uh, touch base with Griffey one more time alright last one alright Mark from Fort Myers Brett who had the best walk up music in baseball well it's the the uh, it's the anthem to the Boone podcast mine <laughs> crazy because- town butterfly yeah, I liked it, and, and it has nothing to do with the words, what it means. I just like the beat. Now, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, that's to each his own. Wh- whatever gets them into that mood when they're walking to the plate, uh, that's the best. But personally, I, I really didn't pay much attention to that stuff. All right. Well, thank you so much to everybody that went ahead and sent those questions in. Again, at the Boone 29. He's also on Facebook and Instagram. That's where you can reach Brett Boone. My name is Dan Levy. This has been the Brett Boone Podcast. Thanks, Digger Phelps. Thank you, everyone, for listening, sharing, and downloading. Remember, you can get this podcast wherever you get your podcast from. So tell all your friends this is where the best baseball and sports conversation lives. One more time for Brett Boone. My name is Dan Levy. This has been the Brett Boone Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Later, everybody.